I have had many projects fail because I've worked too much on the development and not enough on the marketing. I have yet to have something fail because I worked too much on the marketing and not enough on the development. Hey, everybody. I'm Jeremy. And I'm Jess. And we are two internet friends exploring the intersection of independent business and rails. Welcome to another episode of Indie Rails. Today, we have a special guest, Michael Buckby of Wafris. Welcome to the show, Mike. Hey, welcome. Thanks so much for pronouncing Wafris correctly. It's been a challenge <laughs> talking to people at, at Blue Ridge about that. So, uh, yeah. Where did that name come from? It's real simple to me, but not to other people, which is that it's a WAF, a web application firewall, and then Redis, and you put them together and you have Wafris. I didn't get the Redis part. Oh, okay. Where does the Redis part come in? Like, what does that have to do with the company? All right. Well, let's just jump right into it. So <laughs> let's go at a high level and then we'll back into it. Sure. So I think a lot of people in the Rails community, everybody is familiar with Sidekick. And so Sidekick is an open source software where you bring your own Redis instance. What we're trying to build with Wafris is a security tool that lets you better protect your Rails applications and other frameworks, but we're talking about Rails here. And you bring your own Redis to manage the rules, manage the information, and present that in a way that really gives you some unique insights into the application and what's happening in it. Oh, I see. So Redis is where you store all your security rules and it's basically your state management. Yeah. Cool. That makes sense. And there's a real strategic element to that, which is that Redis is everywhere. Anytime you sign up for almost any host, they're like, here's your free Redis for signing up with us. And we're trying to provide that to people. Sorry to uh, go so granular there to start with, but let's back up a little bit. We all just got back from Blue Ridge Ruby. Anybody want to comment or talk about that? It was awesome. It was really well done. Thanks. I thought it was great. So I have at least some background in doing marketing and like much bigger, like enterprise kind of things. And so I feel like this isn't just me saying like, oh, this was nice. Like I actually have quite a lot of experience with going to like really big security conferences and going to larger development conferences and stuff and running those in different ways. And so I feel qualified to say it was great. Not just that it was like my <laughs> gut, you know, it was really well run. I think really well thought out. And I really sort of, in my mind, I categorized it as, oh, this is the way conferences should go. It was very modern in its take. It was a lot about the people there as much as the speakers. And there was a lot of thought given to the stage and the venue and things. It wasn't like, oh, let's just dump everyone in a hotel ballroom for a couple of days. I thought it was great. Thanks, Mike. I did as well. I got to take my wife and spend a little bit of like personal time too. So, and then combine that with business. And also it was really cool coming off of RailsConf to see a bunch of my buddies that I met at RailsConf and then see them, like re-meet them. I felt like I knew them for a much longer time than I would have normally. So that part was cool. And then Mike, I was impressed to see how Wafers was a sponsor and you sort of went outside of normal sponsor things (laughs) and you had like this little side room lounge where there were like video games and people just hanging out. And then we went on this tubing event where you were like providing people with iPhone watertight cases and sunglasses, little things like that are like really cool to me to see. And I thought were special for a marketer. Yeah. Shared a document with you, which was the recap, all the marketing we did. And so from our perspective, we did like four different marketing projects for Blue Ridge. And the goal of this is we're quite small. 
we're trying to get going. We don't have a ton of funds. So we're trying to bring us a lot of energy and like creativity to the marketing instead of just handing out stickers. Like we did hand out stickers to be clear, but <laughs> to yeah. try to go beyond that. And so part of that was we managed to get the room and things through fortuitous set of circumstances with a friend, John Dowd, who was another sponsor. And for a variety of business reasons, they didn't really need the room or were equipped to do the marketing and stuff. So I found out on the Monday before the conference that, oh, hey, this is an option to have thanks to Jeremy and things working out with John. So I had to scramble to get like all the banners and figure out what we're actually going to do with (laughs) it and get all the posters printed. That was fast. You got all that stuff. It looked great to scramble that fast to get it. Well, that's the power of using Canva instead of Photoshop (laughs) because I don't have any design skills. Got my daughter to help me out with that. So nice. (laughs) Yeah. And so then when I landed in Asheville on Wednesday night, I walked to the the staples that you could see from the Renaissance. And I was like, all right, let's print all this up. And so they printed all this stuff up for me. That's awesome. We had that signage. So that was sort of a fluke. But the other things we had were... We sponsored a board game night. Another friend, Adam McRae, who runs Judo Scale, which is a Heroku add-on, he and I worked together to sponsor a board game night. We're both into board games, and it seemed like a fun thing to do. And so we had this big poster that had 20 items on it. And the first one was like, things have gone real bad with your app. Let us buy you a drink to commiserate. And (laughs) number 20, the natural 20, when you roll, was like, things have gone great. Let's celebrate, and we'll buy you a drink. So every person that came in, we'd have them roll this like giant D20. So it made this huge sound when people rolled it and stuff. Mm -hmm. And then if they got anything else, they got basically like a little scenario that just said like, oh, you were able to stop spammers from using your site with Wafris or you were able to handle the New Year's rush on your app with Judo Scale and things. And so that was a lot of fun. We got to buy a bunch of people drinks and have people hang out and things. And to try to do something that was more interactive and not just, I want to say not just drinking because Asheville seems to be entirely composed of breweries. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) The brewery-based economy of Asheville. Place was great. They had like really good food and drinks and stuff. I really liked the city. And then, and I think this was just serendipity. We had thought like, oh, it'd be great to get like an ice cream truck to come by and buy ice cream for everyone. Just try to be friendly. I would highly recommend sponsoring and working with the organizer. It was great. Thanks, Mike. I appreciate that. Really good job of marketing, I think. And like we were talking with Chris Oliver about that, about marketing and sales and like how to do it without being creepy or cringy and or too salesy. And I thought that was a really a lot of really clever tactics. Yeah. Again, hope is to be helpful. I mean, both yeah. with the software and if I can be helpful to people or if, you know, the things we're doing can be helpful. I always think that's just a great place to start for marketing. I've heard that from a lot of people about you, that you are like one of the most helpful people. And so like that has come through. You from son your of a reputation. helpful person. Stop <laughs> it. Certainly. I hope that's my reputation. I do genuinely like talking to people and helping them with things. But I hear that a lot from like other indie creators. It's like, oh, just go out and be helpful as marketing advice. And I think that's really bad marketing advice because I don't think it scales well. It's too vague, I think, if that makes sense. So I much prefer to try to like boil that down into like projects and boil it down into actions and things that are substantial and talking a lot about marketing stuff, which I really like because I feel I guess a couple of things. I feel developers are really good at it and they don't know it because we're able to create things. And I think there's just tremendous power in creating things. 
So something I've done for years is like build these side projects and I call them like content engineering, like beyond just like blogging about something. I found there's tremendous power in like just building a simple tool out of it. Yeah. And this isn't like go off for six months and build this tool. This is like, you can make a JavaScript calculator of this on the page Mm -hmm. that figures this out for you in a half hour. But that's so much more powerful than just saying like, oh, run through this checklist of 40 items to actually have it do some of that stuff. Something a lot of people in Ruby might know is I have a site called For Good STRF Time, which does nothing but help you with like your string formatting of date time strings. Ah, okay. And I built it as a side project for a Ruby meetup here in Norfolk years and years ago. And I've just kept it up as a site. So, and things like that, like that's a helpful thing. And so people know me a little bit from that. So that's one aspect of that kind of stuff where it really more than just like being friendly generically or inauthentically. Yeah. So Mike, we've been talking a lot about marketing. It seems you have some sort of background or previous history of marketing. How did you get started into that? Did you get a college degree from that or did you just happen to come into it? I think I got into marketing out of desperation. Just that (laughs) I built so many side projects that have failed and so many things that have not taken off or been ill-advised for a variety of standpoints that I think it's just been beaten into me by the realities of the internet world. So were you programming before marketing? Oh, yes, absolutely. So I actually have a degree in corporate finance. Me too. Well, (laughs) that's one of those things like, I think the best financial decision I made based upon that degree was not to do it and instead do software development, which is how I put myself through college. And then just ended up, I worked for an agency for a while doing software development for them, building applications for schools and businesses and stuff like real early web apps. You said you got into it out of desperation and then you worked some jobs doing marketing. What led you ultimately to Wafers? In companies, there's a line. There's a line between roles that make money for the company and roles that cost money to the company. Mm -hmm. And that wasn't something I really had a good sense of early in my career. I think this is much more in the scope of doing consulting and taking roles and doing jobs where just to try to make more money, I gravitated to jobs that were on the front of the line where it made more money. And so I ended up more and more doing things like building marketing sites. And along with that, there's a lot of the technical things of like, is this site fast? But also like, does it convert? And does it say the right things that would get people to come in? And the sweet spot is the very technical organizations where they need someone. They can't just hire a content writer because a content writer won't know about the in-depth technical aspects or even the pain points about it. So that was an opportunity. And then to have an opportunity to work on the sites that really made a difference. So that was really my intro into the marketing side. And it's just expanded from there. Were you always working on Rails or do you have history and other frameworks and languages? At this point, I'm kind of polyglot. (laughs) I kind of have to do everything. Yeah. But I have used Rails for over 10 years, like long time Rails. I still really like it. I still think it's a really fast environment to build things in. And that's really where I'm at with my career. Like, I don't want any drama. I don't want anything slowing me down. I just want to build as fast as possible to create things. How did you make the jump into consulting? So at one point, I moved from Ohio to Norfolk, Virginia Beach area to work with the U.S. Navy, where they had an application that was being used with special forces to like do athletic training. (laughs) So athletic training is really like recovery. So if someone gets injured, how fast can they get them back? So it was like a handheld application. So I was doing some development on that, but also 
out of all the developers there, I was the one who could speak without like putting my foot in my mouth too much to <laughs> the people on the base and to the doctors and things and to sort of have that professional face to it. So I came down here for that. And that was really sort of a technical project management role. But I still wrote a number of applications that were used within the Navy for things like as people were transitioning out that would like document like all their medical issues so they could get the right benefits and things. So deployed Rails apps into the U.S. Navy. Then after that, the company I was with got bought by like a much bigger company and it became a lot more corporate (laughs) and really wanted to move out of that. And so I moved out into starting doing some like real small projects as like the first developer in a couple of startups. And then eventually with that experience, went out on my own and started working. Is that when expedited security started? Expedited security really started as a single add-on, expedited SSL on Heroku. I really have two major company projects. Expedited security is a variety of services that are offered on Heroku's elements platform Mm -hmm. to Heroku apps as add-ons. If you're not familiar with the add-ons ecosystem in Heroku, it's very much like the Apple or Google mobile app ecosystem where you can put a service in there. They take 30% of the revenue, but they also have it in their marketplace. So there's some initial marketing for it as well as they take care of the billing. So it's a single source of billing, which really matters to big enterprise companies. You don't have to come on as like a new vendor as well as they take a lot of the single sign-on and a bunch of the other technical things out. My first add-on in there was Expedited SSL. I was one of the first users of the platform API Heroku had to install this and get it working. That's cool. And that really came out from the consulting. I think we have a mutual friend in Andrew Culver. Yeah. yeah. And this is really a pattern I learned from him, which is that if you're doing consulting, you have this great opportunity to see the problems that people are directly having in their businesses that they're willing to pay money for, which is a key thing, not just that it's a problem, it's a problem painful enough to pay money for. And then to have a sort of helpful win-win situation where Andrew at one of his companies he was doing consulting for, uh, created Churnbuster, which was for credit card dunning, like credit cards expire and you have to get them re-upped. So he offered to them, well, I'll build this portion of it for you for 80%, I don't know if that's the exact thing, but less than my normal rate, I'll retain the IP and you be my first customer. And that just hits so many of those things that are hard to pull off. So they get a first reference customer, you get real money and you get like real people using it immediately. And it sort of self-funds for that. So I looked at that and thought that was great. And I couldn't quite do that for my stuff, but every client I had needed SSL. And at the time it was really painful to install. So no one had any compunction about like basically spending a day of consulting, getting it set up to go through the steps and do everything. And $100 an hour or whatever the rate was, like $800,000 to install this. They're willing to pay that. They'd pay less if I could automate this and do it. And so that's really was my first business on there. And since then, it's really just expanded. Expedited SSL really has kind of gone by the wayside as Let's Encrypt has come out. Yeah. As much as it pained me, financial team to to have that happen. It also, I think, was a huge win for the larger ecosystem. And so moved on to new things like that happens. And so one of the things we moved on to was expedited WAF, which is a web application firewall, which is not something a lot of developers really see or have exposure to. 
They might have exposure like Cloudflare, which is a content delivery network. A WAF is very similar. A WAF is essentially a content delivery network that also has a bunch of security rules added to it. If you're using Cloudflare, you can pay them a couple extra hundred dollars a month and get some of the WAF features. And so we added that in as well. We also have an IP intelligence service that you can put an IP address in and find out if it's being used for bad things. And so we started just building out these different services, all, you know, services, not products, all under the goal of trying to improve the security for developers for their applications. The exploited SSL, and then you mentioned the other few products. How quickly did those turn into your full-time income? It was slow, mostly because I think there's two kinds of services. There's the services that you need really only when you're setting things up. And there's services that you get far after. So when you're getting things set up initially, that's when you install SSL. That's most of the time when you think about these things. Or there's, like I said, like an external event. But it's not constant. And if your application's working well enough, maybe you just keep going with it. So the demand is steady. And over time, it's not like all at once. I think that's important for people to realize is that services and products like that, they take time to get off the ground. And you always hear about the overnight successes, but it's really five, seven years in the making. Yeah. Chris Oliver was a guest and I listened to that interview. And he mentioned that he had started, you know, his courses and had that going at the same time as he was working a full-time job. And so much of my stuff has been the same thing. There's Amy Hoy and Alex Hillman have that like 30 by 500, which I've never taken to my regret, but I feel like I've gotten so much out of all the writing. Yeah. Yeah. I read all the stuff. (laughs) Just from listening to other people. You know, I talk about stacking bricks. I love that metaphor you know, stacking bricks or building assets and to try to deliberately think about that. Yeah, I like that. I was curious if you have any advice for people who would think about building add-ons in the Heroku ecosystem or similar systems. What would you tell people who wanted to break into that? A pushback I've gotten from a lot of people, like especially entrepreneurs, is like, wow, Heroku takes 30% of your revenue for this. That seems really high. And I think that comes from misperception of how you get customers is that at some level you need to buy quote unquote customers. You need to buy leads. You need to do either activities that draw them in, whether that's like you write a bunch of technical posts and then they do well in Google and you get that traffic or you do, I have paid invoices to you, Jeremy, for being at Blue Ridge. That's not buying a customer, but there are marketing costs. So I think... The add-on approach is tremendous because it really allows you to scale those costs. Unlike going to Blue Ridge and paying a bunch of money up front and maybe not having any return, they're only taking money if they actually make a sale. Roku, in particular, the marketplace, people are just trained to pull stuff out of there. Hmm. And so there's a lot more upside to it, I think, than some of the other marketplaces. I think it's a good strategy. And I, you know, again, the sort of mindset shift is just that, well, 30% actually is pretty good to get a customer. How hard is it to build a Heroku app? From my perspective and from, I think, any sort of Rails user perspective, it's actually pretty easy. The way to consider it is that Heroku add-ons are environment variable injection applications. And the canonical example of this is something like SendGrid, transactional email service, where you provision the add-on 
And what they do is they inject username and password into your application as environment variables. Then you use those. So you add a gem or you reconfigure your production RB so that it uses those to send the password resets and you're on your way. That's sort of where it starts. My stuff is a little weird because it kind of goes beyond that and it actually like interacts with your Heroku application some. But that's really all it is, is an API key delivery mechanism. So if I had an idea for a Heroku app and I have no experience with connecting that to the marketplace, how difficult of a task would that be? Is it something I could figure out in a couple of days or is it going to be a couple of weeks? Honestly, I think you'd probably figure out the mechanisms to do it in a day. It's not a difficult technical okay. thing. The difficulty with all this stuff is really the marketing. Mm-hmm. I spent a lot of time and effort trying to make our elements page look really nice and to have not just screenshots that are like, all right, click, click, screenshot, put it in, but like explain what it actually does and to try to overcome people's objections. And we have testimonials on there from people we've helped with horrible security incidents. <laughs> yeah, I noticed you put a lot of time into those. Yeah, I could, I could yeah, see that come through. It's a, and even then, Heroku has a very high bar for quality for their mm-hmm. add-ons. Like I've seen them reject people's ideas because they were too low value or they weren't an actual service. They have some steps. You have to get like 10, I think it is, users to get into alpha and then 100 users to get into beta. And then it becomes generally available. And generally available is when you can get money. So you add the app and then you like tell your friends or clients that, hey, we can use this. They can still install it. So it's still in the Heroku system, but it's just not like in the marketplace. It's in the marketplace. It's all under a test plan if that Mm -hmm. makes sense. And then it's only once you hit general availability that you have production plans that come in. You've had this history of building the Heroku apps and add-ons, and they all seem pretty focused around security. When did the idea for Waffers come up and like what set it apart from what you were already doing? I say this a lot, and I think people just kind of go like, oh, okay, Mike's talking about that, which is multiple times a week, I get on a call with a customer who is almost always a developer. Often it it is like an independent Rails developer, like they're the only developer for it. And they are having one of the worst days of their life. They are having a horrible incident with their application. Oftentimes they are just emotionally upset because they've been up Mm -hmm. for like 24, 72 hours, like some ridiculous thing where this ongoing attack is happening. The site's down. They have a non-technical sort of client that has hired them to deal with this. And they have not encountered it before. They don't have the tools to deal with it. <laughs> yeah. Explain my worst nightmare. Well, all right. So consider I have three to five calls a week with someone who's having their worst nightmare, the worst professional nightmare of this stuff where their system is like so under attack that they can't deploy updates to it. They can't SSH or like get console on it. It's ridiculous. And so they're just stuck. You can only hear so many of those before you start to get really angry, (laughs) really angry at the people doing these attacks. So the current tooling that developers have to implement into their applications, I feel is inadequate. And in the same way that as a community, we have all decided, quote unquote, we should all have SSL on our apps. Like no one seriously has an app that doesn't have SSL anymore. In Rails, there's a big emphasis on testing. Like if you're doing a real application, you should have testing. It's just a maturity thing. And I feel there's another pillar to that, which is you should have basic security tooling in place for any application that you put on the internet. And so by basic security things, I mean like you should be able to see the traffic that's coming into your app, see 
what kind of requests are being made and then block requests that you think shouldn't be there. And it's frustrating to me and kind of weird. And this isn't so much a knock against rails, but as sort of our perceptions of like, what's okay. It's kind of weird. There's no good way to block an IP address from hitting your app in rails. And that's the same thing in Laravel. It's the same thing in everything. Yeah. But it's weird because it is trivially easy to look in the logs of your application and find unending amounts of stuff that you would much rather not have hitting your application that is just like waiting for you to make a mistake or waiting for some tiny vulnerability to come in. And that imbalance is really what has led to Wafris. So Wafris is an open source web application firewall. The goal is that like Sidekick or something like that, you can set this up in any application and it just provides that base level of security as an open source application. The real issue with expedited WAF is not that it's a bad service or there's something wrong with it. The real issue is that it starts at like $100 a month, which for large business, not a big deal. For your indie app or the thing you're just starting out with, or even for my customers, they hesitate to put this on their staging and their QA and they have a build pipeline. All of those apps are just sitting out there with no protection. And what the attackers do is they don't choose. They don't go like, oh, I'm going to go attack this site today. What they do is they write a script that says like, I'm going to hit literally every IP address in AWS's IP space today. And that's what they do. So it doesn't matter that it's not production app. And most of the time, it doesn't even matter that it's like, oh, we just have a nonprofit app and people log in and check their account. There's no credit cards in it. We don't really do anything. That doesn't matter either. Because most of the time, the attacks, again, they aren't set like that. They're just trying to do anything. I think a lot of people make open source out of a sense of community or they want to help people. I'm really trying to make this out of vengeance and anger (laughs) (laughs) to deal with these things just because there is such an imbalance. Yeah. When you said about the $100 option, is that something that you offer or something that is in the marketplace? Expedited WAF, there's no free option. The least expensive option is basically $100 a month. And in the realm of web application firewalls, we are almost hilariously inexpensive. If you look at like, what does AWS's, you know, app armor or whatever it's called (laughs) cost, it's a tremendous amount. And the same with like, if you actually do like the feature comparison, like Cloudflare gets brought up a lot. If you actually do the feature comparison for like, is this doing intrusion detection services and everything else? The comparable is like hundreds and hundreds of dollars a month. And the main takeaway is there's not a default. There's not a thing that is just, I'm just going to put this on. It's going to deal with the basics of this and to make my app more. The starting point. Yeah. And that's my main goal with this is really just to raise that level of default security. Because there's a lot of stupid stuff. If we work together, we could stop and make everyone's lives a lot better. There's always been these things that we keep raising the bar on. Whether it's like, oh yeah, you need to use CI or you need to stop sending your own email, <laughs> running your own SMTP server. Yeah. And the bar keeps raising in all these ways. This is like another area where it's like, we could just deal with this. We don't need to live with this anymore. Again, the two issues are identifying the traffic of what to block and then actually blocking it. Mm-hmm. Where there's lots of solutions that do little chunks of this, but it's a frustration. And again, it's weird. Like I had a little iPad I was showing people demos on at Blue Ridge. And one of the screens we have is like the main dashboard to your web application firewall. When you use it, 
is just a list. It's a list of the IP addresses making requests against your site and then how many times they made a request in that time bucket, like in the last hour or the last day. And I don't know, have either of you ever seen that report for any of the apps you've ever run? Or do you have any clue on like how to get that list out? Nope. No. Yeah. That is a very basic thing to ask for. That's not crazy. That's not, this is an AI anything. This is, (laughs) all right, how many IP addresses touched our site and how many different requests did they make? You do that and you find like lots of weirdness. Why is a third of our traffic coming from China and we have an app that's set for US human resource stuff? Like these are Mm -hmm. the kind of clients I deal with. And so- That's one of the things to identify those weird traffic patterns. And the only way to do that now, if you wanted to do it, is you would take all of your logs, you would ship them all to like an Elasticsearch instance, and then you'd write a custom script and then you would run that once. And then you maybe find some insights, then you'd take that and then maybe you're going to use like Rack Attack. Rack Attack's great, but it's by design very focused in what it does. And add an IP address to it, you need to deploy code. So then you're going to put that IP address in there. And then as soon as you do, the attackers are going to like, hey, we came up with a new one. (laughs) So we're trying to break that pattern of this disconnect between what's actually happening in your application to give you a good visualization of it. And then also give you the tool to make it just incredibly easy to like click block. And the third piece of this is to do insights for this, where in the demo that I showed everyone, And we have a tool for this that's open to the public, an IP lookup tool. You can put an IP address in and then see, is it on block lists? Is it something that you should allow to touch your site? Is this something that is part of a larger group of activities that are of concern? And real data, I was able to pluck out Chinese IP address from one of my sites, looked it up, and the 250 surrounding IP addresses for it in the standard block we're also all bots as well. And so like, oh, this is a Chinese bot farm. Just that's what it is. With that information, you can then make, again, much better choices. You can block that whole organization. You can block that whole country and things. And it's those kind of tooling to see the traffic and then make good choices about it that we're really trying to just bring to everybody. And you can do all that from the free open source version? Yeah, I've referenced Sidekick a lot because I have tremendous respect for it as a project and for Mike as a person who's running these things. In the Sidekick, if you're familiar with it, there's a couple of components. There's the gem you install into your application. There's a Redis instance that you bring with it. And then there's a web app that gives you a visualization of the jobs as they occur. We have a similar set of tools. We have open source gem that's very lightweight and really it just takes the request object pulls out the fields we care about and sends it to Redis. Redis stores the information, does the sort of heavy lifting of all this. And then we have a CLI tool, which is also open source, which you can use to add IP addresses and do your sort of management. All of that is crisply open source. People can use. One of our goals is not to just do this for Rails because we're very focused on community. And one of the things I've seen is that no one is safe in all of this. And that you can imagine, well, a WordPress site gets hacked. On one level, we could be really selfish and say like, well, I'm not running WordPress. I don't care. (laughs) Yeah. But at the same time, that WordPress instance that's also hosted suddenly turns around and then launches a thousand malware attacks against a thousand other sites. And we sort of have to deal with everyone. So we have clients that are planned out for all the other frameworks as well, all going to Redis. 
But what that means is we can't have the slash sidekick kind of web interface. So we have a hosted one. And so it's free. Anyone can use it. And it works the same way where it just connects into your Redis instance from the other side of things, the same as the CLI tool, and lets you see all those visualizations. Can we talk about some more of the technical details? I'm curious, when you're blocking requests, at what point is it being blocked? Is this like a rack middleware? That's exactly what it is. So I think technically we call it Wafris RB. It's a rack middleware that connects out through a pooled, using the connection pool gem and connects out to Redis. Redis is very fast. And to make it faster, we've invested a lot in doing Lua scripting, which Mm -hmm. is sort of like stored procedures inside of Redis. So you can do a lot of logic and have a lot of pipelines. Lua? Lua. Is that the same thing that NeoVim uses? Yeah. And it's weird. It's the same thing. The major user of Lua right now is Roblox, the kids game. (laughs) Really? (laughs) Yeah. It's used also for like World of Warcraft, for like all those crazy interfaces people have and stuff. But the other big place it's used is really Roblox. So if you're looking for resources on it, it's a lot of like, (laughs) yeah, how do I launch this cartoon cat across the world kind of things? (laughs) Again, with the goal of trying to make this a default, in order for that to happen, we need to have a storage system that everyone has access to. Everyone has access to Redis. It needs to work on something that's not like a giant enterprise Redis cluster. And so that has limitations on us. And Imposing those limitations and constraints is what we're trying to figure out. So it needs to work in a small amount of memory. So our goal is not to store like all your logs forever. It's to give you that like snapshot of like what happened today in my app. And then we've been testing this with all of like the free Redis instances and like, oh, you only get 20 connections with this. And it still works because in your stack, that Redis connection and setup is still much faster than your database connection or the number of simultaneously web requests you get or anything else. Seems like it's working and we're still working to make it better. How does your hosted solution connect to my data? So the classic setup for these, for Cloudflare and Perva for us, is via DNS. And so in Expedited WAF, what the setup really is changing your DNS to point instead of directly to your Heroku app or wherever you're hosted, to instead point to our network. And then our network runs all the tests, does all the rules, and then only if the request passes, it gives it back to your application. There's good and bad things about that. So it it really prevents it from ever even hitting my application. Yeah. Well, and again, there's good and bad to that. I mean, the good is it never hits your application. The bad is you have to change all your DNS. You have to sort of trust us to perhaps uncomfortable level And typically, you're not going to deploy that for all of your applications. You know, a big thing that's happening in the security world now is zero trust, which is really just a fancy way of saying, like, even if it's on your network, yeah, you should still secure it. (laughs) And you imagine lots and lots of cases where someone's broken into like one tiny part of a corporate network and just been able to run roughshod over the whole thing. And so this is part of that as well, where This is a layer of protection as a default for all the applications that makes them better. One other technical question they talk about like with Sidekick or or caching, you should probably have two different Redis instances. One that's dedicated for Sidekick, one for caching. Is this similar here? You'd want one dedicated instance except for Wafris. That's the recommendation. I have seen so many setups where people are like, yeah, we do Sidekick and we do our caching out of the same one. So we're testing that as well. Yeah, okay. 
Cool. As a business, what is your goal to get customer from open source to a paid version? I'm just going to keep saying sidekick, but you know, (laughs) we look at them as a model for this as well, which is that they offer support and they offer sort of enterprise pricing and they offer features to go with that. Certainly the features are different in our case. I think we're going to have a lot more around, oh, you need a large team for this. You need to manage a fleet of servers. And that's something for us to figure out. Mm -hmm. But the core of having just better tooling to block IP addresses, set these rules and know what's going on in your application. It's so frustrating to me because again, my perspective is so skewed from just talking to so many people that have issues and they kind of wish they'd set something up beforehand. So that's really what we're going for. Is that service already in place? Is that the expedited WAF? No. So these are, to be clear, these are two wholly separate businesses. Mm-hmm. Okay. And I don't know if it's exactly like I want expedited WAF to be like run into the ground because WAFRS does so much better. But the goal is that this is a new career for me. And I think this is going to be sort of like my life project, which is getting WAFRS going, getting it into as many applications as possible, making all the script kitties and hackers and bots as angry as possible. (laughs) And then hopefully building a business on top of that. I saw that, Ryan, you're co-founder had mentioned you're focusing as much on marketing goals as you are on development goals. And so I was curious, how do you make sure you're hitting that right balance? I'm sure that you have a million things that you're trying to get done in both areas. How do you balance that on a regular basis? I don't think there's ever a perfect balance to it. And I think maybe now we're slightly ahead on the marketing side, partially because I spent so much time like trying to prep and go to Blue Ridge. Yeah. But in a very general sense of it, the danger of all of this is doing too much development, of not communicating enough, of not trying to be helpful and out there and doing things. Like, no, I'm a developer. Like, I love creating things. And that is such a seductive thing. It'd be like so easy to like go off and do that. So a lot of times what I tell myself is like, that's my treat. Mm-hmm. Then like, oh, well, <laughs> yeah. if, I do, if I do good marketing this morning and I feel like satisfied with that, I can work on the application this afternoon. That kind of thing. Or like, just tell myself, Whatever you need to do today, do some marketing first. At least get something out there. Send that email I've been putting off. Put that post up Mm -hmm. where I have had many projects fail because I've worked too much on the development and not enough on the marketing. I have yet to have something fail because I worked too much on the marketing and not enough on the development. (laughs) I don't think that's a good word. I don't think anyone's in that case. That's a great quote. Yeah. Should pin that up somewhere. (laughs) Yeah. How did you meet your co founder? Have y'all been working on projects together for a while or is this something new? Yeah. He's actually godfather to my son. So one of the things that came out of Blue Ridge was you had that really neat event where like everyone got to thank each other. Mm, Yeah. Gratitude time. I thank Ken Collins who had created our local Ruby meetup group. Mm -hmm. That's where I met Ryan, my co-founder. That's where Uh, I met Andrew, who we mentioned earlier, and John Dowd, who was the other sponsor. So that was just a very influential and positive group. Even though it was so tiny, there were only like a half dozen of us. So it's really interesting. Yeah. Yeah, It seemed like that was such a great group. I know about everybody that came out of that. That's kind of interesting. How do you think that happened? Was there something about that particular group of people or the way the group was set up that you all encouraged each other in a certain way? Or I certainly would not have had the successes I've had without an encouragement and support of all these other people. I think that is a big part of it. I think the other thing is maybe we've forgotten about all the other people that were there because they only showed up like once and then flaked. (laughs) (laughs) There's certainly a part of this, which is just continuing to work at these things. 
I think you mentioned like overnight successes. This has certainly not been any overnight success. This has been years of failure and years of stacking bricks and trying to do different things and failing. And failing is even too hard a word sometimes where they're learning experiences mm-hmm. where you, you do an experiment, like you're doing small bets and dance things, like you're trying to get that learning going. I have had some big learning experiences out of all of these things. And so trying to move forward from that. One of the things that I've noticed, Mike, is that you've got this domain expertise and this niche around application security. And I'm curious, can you speak a little bit about how that's helped you? And if also on the other side, if there's a way that's been difficult having like, do you ever feel like you're typecast as the app security guy? Sure. One thing that's been very helpful is I think having the way I express is like topical authority, topical authority and expertise where we have a number of products that they all inform each other. And that I think there's a pretty clear line between the work I've done on Expedited WAF and IP Investigator and Expedited SSL and talking to literally thousands of companies (laughs) trying to get their security better into WAFRIS. Like that's a pretty crisp line in terms of environment and seeing problems and being able to address those. I don't think there's too much of a downside to it. I do love creating things and I have created stuff outside of the application ecosystem And that has been a little rough. And most of those things have failed, I think, in terms of both whatever sort of audience and people know me for, it's hard to come in with something else, even if it's, I certainly don't think there's a downside to having niche expertise. And in particular with application security, there's a real benefit, which is that in a lot of cases, the people that are using my software need to do it to unlock something else that they're trying to get like SOC compliant, or they're trying to do this integration with a high security sort of entity. Or, or anything like that, or just deal with an attack. Those are all external factors that push them towards the kind of services I'm offering. And that's a pattern I've seen that certainly helps us to make that easy for those people in that situation. I love the analogy of you have certain products or services or businesses that are like nice to haves that are vitamins. And then you have certain ones that are like critical medicine that you need to live. And I feel like The security stuff is on that side where you don't say, we'd be okay if we had this. Like, you either need it or you don't. Like, you need to have it covered. I love talking about like startups and especially what developers are working on. So, the things that I always try to figure out is what is the pain level? Just as you described, like vitamins to like you're bleeding out the neck. Like, how bad is this pain? (laughs) The other one is DIY to DFY. Do it yourself. Like it's a tool to do this stuff all the way up to like done for you. Like just pay us money. We'll just take care of this problem. And that's sort of the classic, like, are you selling shovels or are you selling like, here's a hole in the ground to put the fence post in? Or is it like, just wake up tomorrow. We'll build the whole fence for you. Right. The more I can push my products to be done for you, where we're able to bake in the intelligence that we have from working and being experienced in this field or from seeing the issues of people trying to install it and get it going, the more we're able to deal with that and make it done for you, the more the value just, I think, really, really creeps up. And as developers, we're weird in the general sense, just in that we love tools. And you know, we search for, like, oh, it's a new tool. Now I can do this stuff with it and things. Most people don't think like that. Most people are like, I'm just trying to get through my day and do <laughs> this stuff. And now I have a new tool to learn. Like, this is incredibly painful. I just want this to go away. What advice do you have for people that are trying to find or develop that rare domain expertise? I think consulting is an awesome way to do that. Like Malcolm Gladwell had the thing about, oh, you need 10,000 hours of practice. And part of that is that it needs to be deliberate 
practice, that it's not just like, oh, I'm randomly doing stuff to learn the piano, but like you're really deliberately learning it. I think it's the same for this, where if you were doing work you're getting paid for to develop and solve problems for, that puts you so far ahead. Like that is the deliberate practice of building developer-led, product-led products. What have you learned about customer service from your experiences doing like security incident response? I think how valuable it is. There's a lot of talk we've had about like marketing and sales stuff. Again, keep referencing Chris Oliver because I just feel like I had so many parallels with him. I was very much where he was talking about like, oh, sales and marketing, that's just like horrible. One of the most powerful things we do is anyone who's listening to this can book a time with me. I have a bunch of calendar pages out there. I'm happy to talk to anyone. I'm most happy to talk to customers, especially as they're trying to get started and solve these problems where I do that. We have hundreds and hundreds of like active customers and have helped like thousands of sites. I have plenty to do, but I still feel it's very important like every week to talk to people using the tools. And I still find out things like how they perceive the product or how they perceive the problems they're trying to solve. And I think it has been a real game changer when people have customer service problems. I am very quick to be like, you want to just get on a call? And those calls give me so much energy and make me feel so good because so often it's a discussion like this, like, oh, you're having X problem. Here's the easy way to solve it. And I would highly recommend talking to people. Sounds weird. Yeah, you should talk to people. (laughs) (laughs) But talk to people about this stuff. I think it just focuses you so much on what you're doing instead of going off and trying to build stuff independently. There's a really great book about this for developers called Deploy Empathy. Yeah. So Michelle's a friend. I highly recommend it. Mike, I'm curious, who do you look up to in product or service development? Are there any people that have been sort of a big inspiration to you? I guess we've already mentioned Mike Perham from Sidekick. Are there any others that you kind of keep taking notes from or look up to? I mentioned Michelle. I think she does a great job of bringing a business sense to a lot of the technical development stuff that it's very easy to get lost in. Justin Jackson, I think a lot of people in the indie creator space know Justin. I've known Justin for a long time. I think he also has a lot of really smart things to say about picking your niche, about what an impact that has, and trying to get beyond the pithy advice. Because there's a lot of pithy advice out there that's like, oh, ideas don't matter, only execution matters. Right. But that's not entirely the case, and that there's a lot more to it than that. And if you're going to try to make something... Yeah, you should take a day or two to at least like really think about this and all of this <laughs> yeah. stuff on it. So I think Justin is a great person for people to follow. Also, this is going to sound weird. I really like a lot of YouTube people who are in like weird niches and doing stuff and building like little businesses and things. And I find a lot of my good ideas come from cross-pollinization from things outside of our technical yeah. software ecosystem. And some of that is just like being open to new things. And some of it is just like seeing the energy of people trying stuff. But I find a lot of those things really cool. I'll make one more comment, Mike. I think this is the first time that I've seen you without a hat on. And (laughs) Jeremy even made the comment that your hat game was so strong. He felt felt bad wearing his hat. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and I saw your business partner posting some pictures of hats and like the 403 error codes. Those are pretty cool. If anyone wants a hat, you know, anyone who wants a demo of Wafris, if you come to the site, you can sign up for the wait list. 
And then we have like a little booking form. You will talk to me if you fill out that form <laughs> and right I'll give you a demo of Wafris and then we're giving out swag to whoever wants it for coming in for the demos. So wafris.org should be very evident what you need to do. Sign up for the wait list and then there's a booking form. All right, Mike. Well, thank you so much for coming in and sharing with us. It was really good to meet you at Blue Ridge. Your marketing game was on point. Your tubing game yep. was on point. You were like <laughs> zipping around that river back and forth and then back to the bunch. I've learned a lot and I'm looking forward to learning some more. I'm, thanks for coming and sharing with us. And if there's anything we can do to help you guys out, let us know. Well, great. This was a delight. So I'm always happy to talk to people and always happy to talk about security and development and indie creators. So this is just, it's all the boxes for me. <laughs>